So before you do hit yeah. the record, yeah. you edit this, yeah? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm just clarifying that. I'm not sure if you're saying that as with a surprise because <laughs> you've listened to the show and you're like, do you edit that? <laughs> Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hello everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream and it's Dave here and you can follow me on Twitter at with Sober Senses. and I'm joined tonight with very good friend and comrade Nick Southall. How are you Nick? Yeah, I'm good thanks Dave. So Nick, um, hopefully listeners are aware of you and your work and your contribution to the struggle. So you blog, what's your blog address? Um, revolts now and I think you've also been um, look you've been like a lifelong communist based in Wollongong um, your people might be aware from, of you from your activity in Wollongong out of workers and your writing about Wollongong out of workers but you've been pretty consistently active since like the mid 70s right yeah that's about right yeah yeah I'm that old so, <laughs> yeah, the point wasn't just to say, oh, right, that's because you're really old. Um, <laughs> uh, it, how's your night going? Yeah, my night's going well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, what I wanted to talk about today um, was the MUA dispute. So it's 20 years from since the MUA dispute happened. And you were involved in setting up a group that I don't think there's ever has there ever been any kind of recorded history or writing about it, which was the Maritime Defence Committee. And I wanted to talk about this because I've been trying to think a lot about uh, change the rules, I think, and I'm trying to understand what change the rules is, what it's like, what's going on, but also how like friends and comrades can. Intervene, intervene is probably a terrible old lefty word, but for lack of a better one, I guess intervene in what's going on. And I was wondering if like the Maritime Defence Committee experience like has some lessons and some insights for us about you know how a small group of comrades could get together while a big struggle was brewing and you know, have an impact even though they're kind of outside of the proper trade union structures? Does that does that make sense? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about that um, since you contacted me and, and suggested you'd like to talk about that sort of thing. And I, I suppose I've struggled with a couple of things. First of all, it's well, for me, Maritime Defence Committee is more than 20 years ago, and it's trying to remember what the hell went on, um, which is a, a, a struggle. Um, but also it was a, a defensive struggle, and which, so it's a, a bit different to the uh, Change the Rules campaign. Um, so, you know, relating them in time and then in... Uh, sort of uh, the fact that one's defensive and one's more, well, more offensive um, is difficult as well. But, yeah, I think there's some uh, 
some uh, interesting lessons out of the maritime dispute um, that can be related to uh, the current situation. As I was getting ready for the show today, what really struck me was how poor my memory of the MUA dispute actually is, like in terms of actually the specifics, like the things that is that my memory of the experience is more about like feelings and events and encounters on the picket lines but the actual trajectory of the of the dispute itself I had to go back and remind myself yeah I, I think uh, I, I had a similar similar experience it was I mean the the most memorable parts of that dispute were I'm, I'm sure for everybody involved uh, on our side anyway um, were the picket lines, you know, and they were some of the most amazing experiences that we've had. So that's what sticks um, in your mind. That's what you remember the most. And as you say, they're fairly emotional, um, you know, uh, impacts that, that, the, that those experiences had. Um, and the sort of, well, we were distanced because both you and I would have played a role on the picket lines, but not so much um, obviously being involved as union members or being involved in the decision-making or really caring about the sort of um, uh, what would be considered the political uh, level of the struggle um, with the governments and the courts and, and so forth. We wouldn't have seen that as, as, as important as the actual experience on the picket lines. Yeah, for me, the, the, the clearest thing is this one incident, which almost sounds like a fairy tale now -ish. I think it was a Sunday. There was heaps of people, or maybe it wasn't a Sunday, I have no idea. There was heaps of people at the picket. And this truck, this was a, the Port Botany picket in Sydney, and this truck turns up and there are five Turkish comrades and they make kebabs and falafel rolls for everyone on the picket. And it was it was one of those, like... Like you know, moments of where you talk about the kind of practical solidarity in a different kind of community, and while this was happening, you know, people were building sheds and and um, you know areas for people to stay. It was it was amazing seeing this this kind of like transformative community appear on the picket line. But I guess like yeah. uh, for for listeners to remember about the dispute, so. It, my, you know, thinking about it, so it really starts in 1997. There's planning between the Howard government and the National Farmers Federation and Patrick Stevedores to deliberately break the MUA. Um, so Patrick's reorganises itself internally, so it's going to be easier to do this. Then they try to train multiple different... Um, non-union labor forces including like australian army guys in dubai that's right isn't it yeah both um uh, serving uh, adf personnel and uh, former adf personnel yeah which is pretty mind-blowing then um i don't remember when the this dispute begins that it kicks off with um sacking all the workers that are employed by patrick stevedores sending you know thugs in balaclavas with uh with dogs onto the docks to kick them all off and move in straight away a scab labor force to run the docks without them with complete government support 
Peter Reith, you know, appears in front of the cameras with a scripted statement saying everything that the company is doing is correct. Then picket lines appear right across the country. And it's been interesting, like, reading about the different um, regional experiences. So, you know, very strong in Melbourne. There's, like, a famous incident where, you know, the riot police under Kennett are, like, sent down to break the picket line and they get trapped between the picketers and building workers, members of the CFMEU, who come off site and sandwich them together and they have to walk single file off the picket line and the picket line can't be broken. Uh, in Sydney, I, I, you know, there's a very strong picket lines there that, that effectively stop buses coming through but apparently up here in Brisbane I wasn't here at the time it was much weaker and they could never effectively shut the dock down and so there wasn't the level of pickets as there was elsewhere so there's some kind of regional differences in that then the dispute is kind of resolved through a series of court challenges that the union launches and eventually they get a deal through the the courts which returns the workers the MUA workers to their jobs, however, with worse conditions and some job losses. That, that's that's about right, isn't it? That plotted history is yeah. Any important details. Yeah. Left uh, look, I think it, it's important to to think about the start of it. It didn't it didn't start um, just in '97. That's when the cabinet met secretly to agree on the plan, uh, the federal cabinet, but. Um, I mean, the, the Maritime Defence Committee, for instance, was established in 1996 um, because it was already clear, uh, especially leading up to the election in 96 and then the election campaign in 96, that this was what was going to happen. Um, so it really started before then and it had been prepared for some time. The government had spent about a million bucks on consultants on how to break the MUA, um, they changed the Workplace Relations Act um, and strengthened the laws to target the union and its finances. They'd been building a propaganda campaign, inc including criminal charges against uh, union officials, including criminal charges against two waterside officials in Wollongong here. Um, they prepared both the, the, the docks at uh, Dubai to train scabs. Then they had the NFF. Uh, set up uh, the uh, web dock at Melbourne to train scabs there. Um, and so there was a, yeah, the, the NFF had a multi-million dollar fighting fund they'd put together. Um, the the government, when um, the the night uh, that the, uh, the security went onto the docks in their balaclavas with their dogs and uh, uh um, confronted the workers and forced them off the job. Um, Peter Reef not only appeared and said the government was going to support them, but that they were going to pay the $150 million of entitlements for the company. Um, so funding the, the, fucking amazing, the isn't it? company with $150 million um, to, to pay off the, the, the workforce. Um, so, yes, I mean, it had been uh, secretly planned for some time, but, of course, that secret had got out um, through various means and uh, the union had been preparing, as had uh, union 
uh, and worker supporters had been preparing for, for quite a number of years. Um, and as you say, uh, the, the situation on the different docks um, in the different areas was, was quite, you know, quite different. So um, Brisbane, yes, they couldn't uh, set up the picket actually outside the dock. They had to move further away, which made it much more difficult to actually stop the trucks uh, moving in and out. In Sydney, the New South Wales government um, was fairly sympathetic to the the, uh, the MUA and the, the uh, pickets and so didn't really uh, try to break them and, and they weren't broken here. Uh, in Melbourne, that operation, the day you talked about there, the confrontation, um, the famous confrontation early in the morning um, was the biggest police operation in Victorian history up until that time. Uh, in Western Australia, they used the tactical response group, fixed-wing aircraft, helicopters, and were, you know, arrested uh, huge numbers of picketers there. So it was quite different in different places. Here in Wollongong, um, we had a picket here for one week, uh, and after a week here, um, Patrick's had been driven out of town. The wharf had been reopened uh, with a different company, that, which was actually run by ex-Waterside Worker Union uh, uh, officials um, and uh, had employed all of the sacked, local sacked Patrick's w workers. So, yes, quite, quite different. I've, I've often thought about, like, um, the Melbourne experience and how it re related to then policing that, that had happened later in Melbourne. Like, I, I've got a theory that I've got no evidence for that some of the violence of the police a couple of years later when the World Economic Forum S11 protest was on was motivated by their need to overcome that previous defeat. You know, that they had... You know, I've got no evidence for that, but... That, that that had been such a defeat for the the Melbourne police, for Vic, the Victorian police, they couldn't break that picket, that they had to take a particular kind of stance in, like, later confrontations to show that they had the gumption. So... Yeah, yeah and I think it, it, it's... Uh, you know, I think that sounds reasonable enough. Uh, and um, I think it's also important to, to think about the fact that uh, a lot of the people who would be taking part in the blockade of the the uh, the WEF for uh, S11 would be the same people who were on the picket lines. You know, that one of the reasons there was that blockade of um, the uh, WEF meeting was because of um, the the MUA dispute. Well, that, uh, that, that's that's totally right. Because like the other thing I was trying to remember that this didn't ta happen in a bubble. Right, that um, you know, like for me personally, the so the in 1997 was the year of particularly um, confrontational student movement, where the the Howard government's attempts to introduce upfront fees at universities had led to a series of um, of um, huge demonstrations followed by office occupations, and that these had prevented upfront fees being introduced at a number of different universities. And I think it's also the same kind of period of time when the Jabaluka dispute is starting as well, where you have you know thousands of people going up to the Northern Territory and forming a blockade 
effectively, right? Um, yeah. At, at the same times too, you've got the kind of, you know, it's the... Oh, look, I remember being on a train um, from Wollongong and oh, this... My memory might be playing tricks with me, but for me, it's very clear. On a train going from Wollongong to Sydney and talking with some people I'd met on the train and I was going to an MUA event for the, for the dispute and they were going to a reclaim the streets in the city, you know, and you're going to see those two different threads just a couple of years later fused together. So there was, there was a lot kind of going on and the picket and the blockade really seemed to be the kind of, in my head, like this is how we struggle. You know, the, the resonance that were happening across society over those couple of years. Yeah, and of course, the, the, the sort of um, the fact that the, the, these pickets were not your traditional pickets, but they were actually called community pickets. And to, as a tactic to get around the new industrial laws, the union had to um, use that term and say they were community pickets, but not just that. Because the government brought uh, company brought injunctions against MUA organisers for organising against organising the pickets, um, then actually uh, uh, other members of the community, sometimes union officials, sometimes uh, union organisers, but sometimes just vol vol community volunteers, actually had to take the roles that would usually be taken by union officials in actually running, organising um, the pickets. So they were, to a certain extent, genuine community pickets. And this was a new, uh, really a new development on such a large scale. And I think also on the, uh, the other side of this as well, that the pickets became the site where all the people that wanted to fight against what was going on and oppose the really um, intense attacks that the, that the Howard Costello government were launching would come along to the pickets to get involved. It's like the fight became a bigger fight in some ways. But um, indeed, indeed, I think, you know, I think there was uh, a, a genuine, a general and common understanding that this was a class struggle that this was a struggle about class power and the ability to organise that power and that if the MUA got broken, that, you know, um, everybody else was next. And so there was a need to defend the MUA, but also to, you know, to, to, to organise that class power, to, to, to demonstrate it um, and to actually uh, mobilise it um, to, to take effective action. Yeah, the same way that the state and capital were clearly organising, cooperating together, um, we had to do the same. Yeah, although as as was borne out by the struggle, um, we did it a lot better than they did because <laughs> they were in fact much more divided than we were. So like, you talked before about the long planning that was going on. What's your understanding of like why it was so important at that particular moment to break the MUA? for capital? Well, it was, I think there was, there was the local dimension. Um, so the Howard government um, had been elected on a, a, a platform of uh, breaking, you know, militant unionism um, and delivering for 
capital. Um, and obviously they also, you know, see the, the, the union movement as, as the Labour Party does, as the industrial arm of the Labour Party. So this is a way to, to break um, the power of, of the Labour Party as well. Um, but also there was a, 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 an international offensive at that time, uh, an intensification of class struggle. And the Howard government wanted to be part of that. And capital was demanding um, that, uh, you know, the government become part of that as well. So uh, especially on the wharfs around the world, it, this wasn't done in isolation. You know, there was there was a tax on the wharfs in New Zealand, in Britain and in various parts of the world. So this was, you know, uh, uh, an offensive on, on a fairly global scale as well. Because I guess for the kind of like, you know, globalised organisation of production that really kicks off from the late 70s on, you know, global just-in-time production, wolves become really crucial in that entire machinery functioning, right? Yeah. You know, it's and you, you actually get a situation where a new, relatively numerically small amount of people seem to have like a chokehold position on huge amounts of flows of capital. I was... um reading the uh, 97, 98 budget today, just not all of it, just little bits of it, couldn't access the 98, 99 budget because that was broken. But it's interesting having a look at that because, you know, what it says is that, you know, unemployment in Australia was still relatively high. It was 8%. It would have been much more in the Illawarra. But um, even that 8% was down from what had been a couple of years before in the height of the 90s. And growth was kind of kicking off, you know, there was, it was expressing this idea that Australia was coming out of the late 80s, early 90s recession. But what the budget was particularly concerned about was that wage growth was 4.5% and that this was too high. And, you know, the budget explains this in their language by, um, you know, there's inefficiencies which are caused by the lack of competition and that there's the need to restructure the labour market so we'll no longer have uh, these wage growths. And what they were particularly worried about is that they were saying that, due, and I'm not sure how true this is, but due, due to the way that the industrial relations system was structured at the time, that the high wage claims from enterprise bargaining in key industries was flowing on across the workforce, and they wanted to break this that there was no longer those kind of flow-ons, but rather have um, a far more kind of sexually broken up um, and individualised condition of wages as a way to structurally unorganise us, which was kind of fascinating to see that in the budget um, at the time that the MUA dispute is starting about to start. Yeah, well, of course, the government was, you know, uh, was had did have what turned out to be uh, you know um, the federal court decided was a criminal conspiracy um, whereby they were uh, running a propaganda campaign that to justify these attacks um, and efficiency uh, was one of the catchwords of these attacks right around the world um, and you know it, it's interesting. When you talk about, you know, well, what did capital gain, you know, or what was the the agenda, capital's agenda in this uh, in this struggle, um, that you saw, in, as I mentioned before, that that capital was divided. You and this was classically 
demonstrated by the division between Patrick's and P&O, the other main stevedoring company. So, uh, you know, P&O um, didn't stand with Patrick's. They, in fact, um, used the fact that Patrick's uh, had the pickets outside to, uh, you know, take their work off them. Um, but also it's important, I think, to remember that, that Patrick's uh, was given 150 million from the government and a lot more uh, as well in different ways. That somebody, Chris Corrigan, the the uh, the boss of of Patrick's, made a lot of money out of this dispute, a lot of money. Um, and that the, the, for the Howard government, which was a you know Howard was basically a, a Thatcher a Thatcherite. Um, this was a political attack. You know, this was uh, much like a. a Thatcher attacked uh, the the NUM in Britain. This was this was how Howard and uh, Howard the Howard government's you know um, reenactment, if you like, of that sort of dispute. This was a political attack on uh, what I think it was Bill Kelty called the heart and soul of the union movement, the MUA. So what's the story? What's the story then for how the Maritime Defence Committee got organised and? Can you? What was that all about, and what were you attempting to do? Well, um, basically, the the after the election of um, the Howard government in '96, there was a group of people, um, communists, um, who were trying to discussing the 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 lack of uh, national communist organisation and how we could work together on a, on a national level as communists. Um, now, that wasn't getting that far because we all had sort of different backgrounds and experiences of, of why we'd become disillusioned with the previous parties or organisations we'd been members of. But we did find commonality around um, the need to support the maritime workers in their coming confrontation. And, and as I said, by 96, after the elections, very soon after the election, um, we decided it was crystal clear this dispute was coming and that we should try to organise um, some sort of defence for uh, maritime workers. Now, none of us uh, involved in those discussions were maritime workers, so that made it difficult. Um, so what we thought was we would try to form some sort of defence committee, a sort of traditional defence committee uh, for uh, maritime workers, just a short-term temporary uh, committee um, that would um, build support for the MUA and uh, the workers on the waterfront in the lead up to the struggle um, that was coming and then um, sort of, uh, well, defend and build class power as much as we could given this, what we thought was going to be a historic confrontation between capital and labour. Did, any, did the 1996 march on Parliament House play any role in these kind of conversations? Um, well, we, we, what I think we thought and what we, we, we assumed that we were, we were part of a milieu within the union movement, within the labour movement that had become disillusioned with 
much of the union leadership and certainly with the Labor Party after the accord process um, and that there was a feeling that the amongst uh, rank and file uh, union members that there was a need to break out of um, the sort of straitjacket um, that the accord had placed on uh, the Labor movement. And so I think, yeah, that, that, that action demonstrated that to a certain extent as well. Um, so, yes, that would be... Do you mind um, telling the listeners about what the 1996 Parliament, March on Parliament House was? Because there, were, there might be some listeners who weren't even born then. Well, I wasn't there, I wasn't there Dave. Oh, well, neither was so, I. <laughs> So you know, it's probably I'm probably not the best person to to uh, to ask about uh, yeah about the the march on Parliament. But it was a, um, it was a big rally that um, led to a confrontation at the front of Parliament House. Indeed, indeed, and it was in some ways a, a reenactment of of the previous um, breaking down of the doors of Parliament, a sort of. Uh, I think the new parliament uh, had been built in some ways to stop uh, workers being able to break through the, mm. the front doors as they did in 1982. Uh, and uh, some people decided to t take up that challenge <laughs> <laughs> and demonstrate workers' power once again uh, by smashing their way in. Um, but yes, I wasn't there and I, I can't remember um, why I didn't go or why I wasn't involved in that at the time. But it was certainly, uh, there was certainly, that was, you know, a manifestation of that frustration um, because absolutely, you know, that wasn't being organised by the, the union leadership or, or I'm sure the marshals of that demonstration. Okay, so you form the committees. Is it actually a national organisation? Look, it's not. It's it's initially um, formed in in Wollongong and Sydney, um, and then it's spread in a different form, but not under that name, to other parts of the eastern seaboard. But really, it's it's focused on Sydney and, and Wollongong, um, where it's really active. And and what kind of activity did it engage in? Well, so initially we just um, got together as many um, people who were interested in preparing for the, the, the struggle as we could. So um, uh, both here and in Sydney, the, the committee involved MUA rank and file members, rank and file members of other unions, members of left parties, um, left wing members of the ALP pensioners, unemployed people, students, academics, etc. Yeah. And um, the, the, one of the, the main things we thought was that the, the government had been running and the media had been running a very effective campaign um, to uh, uh, paint uh, maritime workers as uh, an elite, uh, uh, greedy, lazy and often criminal. Um, so, and, and that had been, and that had worked fairly well. So we thought we needed to help counter that, to put out um, information, um, publicity, um, uh, uh, organised meetings, film nights, events, uh, media interviews, whatever we could to foster public support uh, for uh, 
uh, maritime workers facing um, this, these attacks, which were becoming clearer and clearer by the day. We also sort of um, saw ourselves as having a sort of education role um, about why the, you, you, uh, uh, people should find common cause with the maritime workers and how this was an attack on the class, not just an attack on maritime workers. Uh, so why people should care about this dispute and how that care could be put into practical action. So helping to prepare um, connections, networks um, between uh, people who were sympathetic, people who wanted to, to do things uh, and uh, thinking about and talking about and developing ways of building solidarity. We collected names, contact details for you know, the telephone trees we assumed would would come in. Yes, this is back in the day when telephone trees were the sort of way you so, you you organised. That's, uh, that's amazing, action. isn't it? Um, and, uh, and not many mobile phone numbers on those telephone trees either. There, there was not. There was not. I, I, I noticed uh, Sally McManus talking the other day about how much time she spent um, doing telephone trees during the dispute. And that was, I think, one of the uh, early things that she did as part of the movement. Um, we also raised money. We realised that, you know, money's always going to be an, an issue. So, yeah, we, we had, you know, public meetings, film nights. Um, we, you know, put the hat around as much as possible, um, contacted organisations and individuals. We thought had money um, preparing for the fighting fund. And basically just, you know, the, the, the idea for me and, and I think for a number of the other comrades was basically, you know, to provide the class with various opportunities to self-organise in preparation for a struggle that was going to require, you know, more self-organisation um, because we were sceptical, um, critical or worried about um, the union's preparations, and we we weren't, you know, since uh, there'd been, you know, uh, a fairly uh, uh, defeatist um, strategy adopted for so long. We were we thought, well, this is a time when there is an upsurge of grassroots revolt, and we can, you know, help to foster that and be part of that. Do you mind fleshing out what your kind of criticisms of the union movement at the time were? Well, this is, you know, I mean, Labor had been in power up until 96 for, you know, what was it, you know, 13 years or something like that. And this was the Accord period. And the Accord period was a disaster for organised Labor. Um, you know, I mean, uh, union uh, membership rates had been halved. Um, the unions in, had been... Uh, policed by the ALP to just basically become totally corporatised. Um, you know, I mean, the defeat and demoralisation were the, were the order of the day. And this was in a global atmosphere where, you know, supposedly real existing socialism had ended, um, you know, around the turn of the, the decade, the, the beginning of the 90s. And so, yeah, the, you know, there was a feeling that... Uh, you know, traditional unions, left-wing organisations and parties had failed, um, had become um, tamed or uh, had been co-opted. 
and uh, that uh, there was a general concern that those who had, had the most power in uh, the labor movement um, were incapable of uh, fighting. Did you have any sense of how the union movement, like the leadership, thought of the efforts that the Maritime Defence Committee were engaged in? Yeah, well, look, I, I think, you know, I, li I like that quote from uh, from Bill Kelty, you know, the idea that the, the MUA um, was the heart and soul of the, uh, the union movement in this country. And I, I think, you know, I, I, when I was reading that the other day, I thought, well, I think that's that's true. And I think that um, the heart and soul of the MUA um, was communism. And that was still the case, certainly leading up to um, this dispute. So we found, although um, certainly here locally in Wollongong, the union was very guarded uh, and uh, reluctant um, to, uh, you know, support us, um, that uh, a number of uh, MUA officials um, in Sydney and elsewhere uh, were very happy to see the establishment of the Maritime Defence Committee. And they had similar um, criticisms of much of the union leadership as we did. And they were also worried that um, left to their own devices, um, the, the, the unions as they'd been organised in, in the last decade or more, um, you know, may be defeated. Uh, and they needed more broad popular support and uh, saw the, the, the establishment of the M, uh, Maritime Defence Committees as, you know, uh, uh, a good step in a direction of involving more people and, and giving, you know, people uh, at the grassroots a way of participating in the struggle. So, the, you know, it was contradictory. Um, but uh, in, in general, the... the, the uh, Certainly the people we, we worked with from the MUA were generally supportive. Mm. And so when the dispute proper starts, does the MDC, the MDC continue or does it kind of just fold into the activity that's going on? Well, it, 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 it did a bit of both. Yes, so um, once uh, the, the um, dispute started, obviously the involvement not just of the union leadership but the the union membership and the leadership and membership of many other unions um you know became uh, more intense very intense in fact um and uh, it really concentrated the mind of a lot of, of a lot of people who up until that point had other things on their mind or other struggles going on or or whatever uh, whereas we'd been focused on this this one struggle. Um, but at the same time, we had developed over a couple of, almost a couple of years leading up to the dispute, um, a, a fairly loose but, you know, um, reasonably organised structure uh, that was effective in uh, doing the sort of things we'd intended to do. And so we, you know, um, used that, to do what we could 
um, in as militant a way as we felt um, was possible given the conditions uh, we were facing. And what's what's your analysis of how the the MUA dispute played out? Look, the the again quoting Bill Bill Kelty, the the ACTU secretary, <laughs> he described this as uh, probably the best planned dispute in the history of the union movement. Um, the the MUA leadership not only like the we did at the Maritime Defence Committee know this was coming for some time, for probably at least a couple of years ahead of time. But they also were being provided by information from within the from the within the enemy. So, for instance, when the troops uh, and the, the former troops went to Dubai, um, uh, at least one of them, if not more, were providing information to the union about what was going on. That's um, awesome, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, that, kind of, uh, that kind of stuff's brilliant. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Which was helped drive them out of Dubai because the International Transport Federation um, put pressure on uh, the, the authorities in Dubai and got them kicked out, got their visas cancelled. That's why awesome. they had to come back to, to, to WebDoc. Um, but uh, also they had um, some senior people in the senior bureau- bureaucracy um, in Canberra providing information from within um, the government as well. Um, so they knew about the government's preparations and also um, from within, uh, even from within um, the financial institutions that uh, Corrigan uh, was relying on to, to fund uh, the company uh, during the strike. So they had all, all the information on Patrick's financial situations, um, which was being leaked to them from inside. Communists so, in the banks. <laughs> look, it's, well, let's not forget, when we talk about the the, uh, the the picket lines and the police and so forth, that the police association provided food to the picket lines yeah, in New South Wales. Wow. But in, in Victoria... Um, the 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 union put on work bans so that they wouldn't attend any demonstrations during the dispute. Um, so and that actually had an impact on their policing of the dispute. So there's all sorts of uh, things Sometimes going the state on. State seems so fragile, doesn't it? Indeed, indeed. So so the the union uh, leadership and the membership did organise a fairly sophisticated and a, a quite a disciplined struggle. Um, the, the, the ACTU um, uh, and uh, uh, other unions and, and supporters in general, like the MDC and, and other groups, um, raised enough money to keep the workers uh, uh, who were sacked, and there was 2,000 2, of them, yeah? They raised enough money to keep those workers at close to their normal earnings for about nine months. Now, the dispute, only went, the dispute only went for a month. Right, <laughs> but they had enough money to, yeah, um, and that was important because the Centrelink had been told by the government to target MUA uh, the sacked workers and to make it as difficult as possible for them. Although again, that got out because CPSU workers uh, leaked that information, uh, so that was known as well. They established the community pickets to avoid the industrial laws, and again, I think that was a, a really you know clever tactical move, and it was important for participation and and as you said right at the start 
that's you know that's where the life of the the, the this dispute was that you know and this was you know i mean it was such an amazing experience and such a powerful um uh um time to be involved in those picket lines um they also in, uh, use the the tactic of of shielding um because the new industrial laws uh, meant that um, the mua uh, officials were facing now criminal courts, criminal charges. There was, there was, they bypassed the industrial commission. The government was now like using, you know, um, the criminal courts to to uh, to attack uh, the unions. So the MUA officials were shielded by other unions. Um, other unions would do the roles that the MUA officials needed to do or that uh, community volunteers would do things so the union wasn't doing them so they couldn't be targeted by the new laws. Um, there was a lot of discussion about the, the, the picket lines and whether um, the scabs should be targeted or what the union decided was to stop the movement of goods and whether that was a good idea or not. And I think uh, while I was initially critical of that, uh, strategy or tactic. Um, I think that worked well. Um, and the the way they, you know, sort of split capital by allowing all the other docks to remain operational. So there was no all-out strike. Um, and were, were there no... calls to extend the strike? Look, the, there was discussion and there was calls. I mean, some of the left organisations, parties, um, certainly called for all out, you know, like should be a general strike. Yeah, but they a, always do that. Yeah, well, they do, in that, in, and, and they did. <laughs> um, but also that, you know, there was there was discussion about, well, why are some docks working and, and some not? Um, you know, what, why should they keep, shouldn't they go out? And so um, the discussion was held um, uh, fairly widely about why they had a decided to let P&O and other uh, docks operate um, to basically, you know, uh, break, well, divide, you know, divide capital to allow the the ships to go to other uh, docks uh, to starve uh, Patrick's of work um, and to avoid being charged with, you know, secondary boycotts, which is what would have happened. Um, and that's certainly the case. Employers increasingly boycotted Patrick's and used the P&O terminals. And down here in Wollongong, the terminal, uh, the wharf that was set up by, um, you know, ex-Waterside uh, Workers Federation people. Um, the, they, they launched the legal action. So they, you know, this was going to be a, a, obviously the, the courts were going to be used. And so they used the courts against the government and Patrick's, they brought the criminal conspiracy charges um, uh, and and used the Workers uh, Relations Act against the government. In fact, the, the court found that Peter Reef, the workplace relations minister, had actually conspired, criminally conspired to break the laws that he introduced, <laughs> you know, which was quite an amazing decision. Um, 
And, you know, their media campaign uh, was fairly effective, highlighting the use of thugs and dogs to take over the docks, get rid of the workforce, um, that this wasn't a strike, this was a lockout or a sacking, and that, that, that you know, if, if people stood by and allowed this to happen, then who would be next? That was very effective. The, they got support from the International Transport Federation, so there was international action going on, um, a lot of support in, in uh, money kind uh, and various activities going on around the world, and uh, uh, shipping companies were persuaded to bypass Patrick's again to, vo to avoid being targeted when they left Australia, because the ITF made it clear that's what would happen. So I think, you know, the strategy um, in many ways was was effective uh, and uh, the, the I mean the the uh, the, the uh, Patrick's um, and the government's conspiracy was broken within a month which I think was was quite amazing really given the situation um, so I think you know while I'm critical of the uh, a lot of the compromises that were reached at the end of the dispute and I'm certainly uh, was crit very critical at the time of the dropping of the uh, pushing that criminal conspiracy case further to, to to really expose Reef and Howard and the government and all of the people who had conspired. Um, I mean, it's it was you know there was a lot of uh, uh, clever thinking and, and a lot of um, you know good tactics. I think the strategy in general. Um, had a lot of good uh, points. Um, what do you think about your activity, in, like as in the Maritime Defence Committee? How, what do you think of, you know, what's your evaluation of how successful what you guys did? Well, I think I. That's a diff, It's a difficult question. It certainly uh, didn't um, help. Uh, you know, I said that a, a number of uh, the communists who were, began the discussion around the Maritime Defence Committee were looking at ways of organising uh, um, more nationally together, you know, finding commonality um, to work together nationally. And certainly it didn't lead to that. Uh, and certainly for myself, I decided after that uh, struggle to turn more to, to focus more locally uh, and to engage in more revolutionary action on a local level. Um, of words. <laughs> Thank you. So but, listeners might not be aware that Nick <laughs> and I, a couple of years later, were involved in establishing an anti-capitalist collective called Revolutionary Action. Indeed, indeed. Um, but, I mean, that... Um, it's a cliche that struggles are the great teachers, yeah, the, the engines of revolutionary praxis. And, you know, the the lessons that were learned by the, the Maritime Defence Committee um, people, the people we um, worked with, um, I think were had a, a, a really important impact on us uh, and an impact on, on those we, we organised with. And I think you can, you, you know, the legacies 
of those those lessons for for us and and others um, were were really important and, and long lasting for me. You know, they last up until now. You know, and, and I'm sure um, that that's pretty much true for for everybody who was involved in the Maritime Defence Committee and, and those we worked with. Mm. Because I remember, like, the debates afterwards and, you know, the debates I was involved in were ones on the far left about if if it had been, like, a victory or a defeat. And I think in 90... It would have been 98. I actually went down to um, one of the meetings in Melbourne that the Socialist Alternative, which was a very different organisation in 1998 than it is now, and it had a quite open atmosphere and there are a number of... Um, comrades who were involved in ultra-left groups. Paul, I've forgotten his name. He came to one of the... Um, Paul White, who was involved in the kind of the really, like, you know, international communist current kind of stuff, and they were arguing about this was a defeat. And I could understand, argue, you know, the kind of logic of what they were saying in terms of the compromises, but I felt it had been a win and that other people were experiencing it as a win and that there was a kind of surge in feelings of what we could do that carried on for a couple of years you know there was a period of time in Wollongong where we were involved in a number of pickets community pickets and industrial disputes and at, at, um, and I feel that if it hadn't been for the MUA though dispute that those community pickets might not have happened yeah look absolutely I, I mean it, it ended with a, you know a class compromise it, it so there were losses, yeah, 600 jobs were lost, yeah. Um, I mean, the MUA had already given up sort of 220 of those positions before the dispute started, um, but that's a lot of jobs lost. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of those workers, not all of them, but a lot of those workers would have considered that a loss. The MUA was, was weakened um, in, in some ways by, by this dispute, um, as well as emboldened and strengthened in other ways. Um, wages and conditions were eroded, um, workloads were increased. Um, Corrigan, you know, uh, the Patrick's boss, he made a truckload of money. Um, the dispute cost lives, yeah. Um, there were suicides. Some people were broken. Um, some people never recovered from that dispute. Um, so I think that's important to remember. Uh, some of the tactics used, like the turn towards fighting things in the courts and the use of, of lawyers to fight disputes, was popularised because they won in the courts. The federal court found in favour of them, and that was is incredibly problematic. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a national MUA official recently, and he was saying they'd spent, I think in the last year, $10 million on lawyers. Um, That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Um, so, and at the end of that dispute, they, they'd listened to the lawyers' advice about, you know, whether to keep going with the con conspiracy case and so forth and the more conservative sections of the union movement and, and so forth, and, and that compromise at the end was, was problematic. Um, but um, the workers were reinstated. They did get to march back through the gates um, the MUA retained 100% coverage of waterfront labour. Um, they retained collective bargaining rather than individual contracts, which was the, in, the intent to bring in individual contracts. And 
Absolutely. The MUA, here to stay, was revitalised. Uh, much of the union movement in Australia was revitalised, as it was overseas. This was seen as a, a great victory overseas in, in many parts of the world. The, the following year, we had that amazing campaign around East Timor and forcing the government, the Howard government, into doing something about what was happening in East Timor, which involved all sorts of um, union activity and wildcat uh, workers activity and so forth. Incredibly powerful campaign that I think, you know, without the, the, the MUA victory, if we call it that, would never, wouldn't have happened or would have been, wouldn't have been as effective. And we've already talked about S11 uh, here in Wollongong, as you say, things like the Joy Community Picket Lines, which again were were victories with with some losses, but in general victories, you know, they wouldn't have happened, I don't think, with their community picket lines and so forth. I think in general, vulnerable workers felt safer, felt emboldened, felt more powerful because of the inspiration of the picket lines. That, you know, the dispute in general, yes, but most importantly, the picket lines. Yeah. Um, they got a sense of their own power. And it's the, it's the encounter with other people, right? Like, you know, I was thinking about something you, you said recently in an online discussion about how the class makes itself and organises itself. And I think one of the difficulties people experience now is the kind of um, the lack of a common experience of work that people can see each other in you know there's we need to work out ways where where people across the class encounter each other and talk together and spend time together and struggle together and you know i remember like um at the time being a student being very worried about that kind of i'm a lefty student am i some kind of like you know what's my role in this and i never received any of that from you know wharfies that I would encounter and have beers with and be on the picket in fact all that kind of stuff was thrown out of the way people were people there was an active sense of working to find commonality with each other and like that that's that's crucial you can't have you know some kind of conversation about a class movement without this idea that people come together and really encounter each other I guess the the other thing I was thinking of as well, it's kind of the end of the Thatcherite option in Australia, isn't it? You know, like that's the last time that capital tries the, the front-on national attack using the power of the state. That option gets retired. Yeah, I think I think so. I think, you know, the, the Labor Party, you know, um, corporatist, um, class compromise strategy was demonstrated to be superior um, in, you know, slowly but surely, um, you know, demolishing um, uh, resistance and uh, areas of, of class power. Um, and, yeah, that, that I think, you know, that had already been demonstrated, but, you know, um, Howard and, and his uh, ilk were, were Thatcher. Thatcherites and they wanted to give it a go and it, it yeah it failed and, and when they try 10 years or so later with work choices so a different strategy that fails again yeah absolutely absolutely and they're they're out on their ass and and um, labor comes in and shows them how to do it with the unions on side oh I think that and that brings us to another point right that um right now you know like 
so we're, we're in this change the rules moment. And how do you understand change the rules? What's your thinking about it? Well, this is the other difficulty I have with, you know, when you sort of said, well, you wanted to project into the future or the present, I should say, um, and think about this because I have, you know, become more and more disassociated with the, the union movement. So I haven't okay. been giving so a lot of... Why is that? Like what's happened what? over the 20, you know, the 20 years where you've become more disassociated from the union movement? Well, my, I mean, it, it, my politics has changed a lot. And one of the things that it makes it really difficult to think back to that time is that I was a very different person when that happened and I thought in a very different way. And my politics has changed quite a lot. I mean, I'm still a communist, but what I think a communist is, <laughs> what I think communism is and what I think class is and et cetera, et cetera, is very different to how I thought of it then. And I certainly um, have taken many steps back from from the union movement compared to my connections in the past. I'm still a union member. Um, I was at a, my union meeting uh, last week where I voted uh, to, uh, you know, for a ballot for industrial action and uh, and so forth. But uh, yeah, but my uh, my view of, of the the role of unions and the the usefulness of unions for class struggle has changed a lot since then. Um, circumstances have changed, but also my you know the way I view them has changed a lot. Can you tell um, so, us how your view has changed? Well, because I because I, I, I'm confused. Right? Well, I, I, I think yeah, you you go. Yeah, I ask yeah, you, well, I, you know, we're both confused, indeed. Good. I'm glad we have got that in common. Look, I mean, union rates now are like what about one in ten? Um, amongst the young, it's one in twenty. So once upon a time, when you talk about unions, you were talking about a large section of, of workers. Today, you're not. You're talking about a, a, a shrinking minority of workers. And look, that 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 you know that reduction in the social power of unions, the diminishing of, of, of the power of the unions. Um, reflects those sorts of changes to, to class composition, um, you know, the stricter industrial laws, but also that co-option by, by capitalist state forms and by capital it, itself. So that corporatism, you know, over a long period of time has, has ground down uh, the, the uh, ability um, of uh, unions to actually um, fight to actually uh, mobilise class power, or, or to want to do that, um, you know that, that that's you know very limited. Um, and since that's what I'm interested in, I have increasingly looked elsewhere. You know, as have the class. Yeah. You know? I mean, the class. You know, um, people look at like the HSU situation or shorten and the awu or the sda and the, the you know i mean okay the 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 union royal commission is is you know a a a, a, a boss's um commission 
meant to, to um, undermine the unions, but a lot of the stuff that comes out in the media um, and uh, um, what, a, what we've seen, the revelations we've seen about a lot of the corruption and manipulation by the ALP of the union movement is, is commonly known. You know? um, it, it, it's well understood now that the ALP is poisonous um, to the class and, and poisonous to a genuine you know, uh, militant union movement. And that it polices the union movement, yeah. that it diverts it into electoral politics, that it uses it as a springboard for people like Shorten to, you know, to, to manipulate um, both the unions and the ALP for whatever, you know, their careerist yeah. um, paths. I, I increasingly think, you know, it's the, it's the ALP, which is like the primary, like political enemy of developing of the class in movement you know it's the and that's not just recent you know people want to have this myth of the kind of the alp as being a standard kind of social democratic reformist socialist project that some period in the 80s things went bad but i think that that long tradition of of laborism has always been about you know what we'll do is not fight capital but we'll limit the labor market through support for borders and we'll get arbitration and particular support and you know and particular support for particular industries and that's our strategy and that, that strategy is still alive today that's still in the change the rules campaign but you know like um because i was thinking like in 1998 i very much had the classic kind of socialist opinion that you know trade unions are the basic organizations of the working class so um we have to defend them fight for democracy within them and expand them then i guess in the years afterwards and in the years we were comrades i had a more of a turn to the ultra left where i was like no trade unions are just purely recuperative bodies and now i'm i'm kind of somewhere confused in between and wanting to think about unions specifically and i think shane reside's article um in overland was really really great because he wants to kind of think about that kind of specificity but today I, I think it's not just even like the low membership it's like what does it mean to be a union member today i think people want to talk about the few work sites where there are union meetings where there are there is a level of organization but there's a lot of that one in ten or one in four young people who are members of unions where you can't say that that experience is actually an experience of organization in any way and you know, the, the Change the Rules campaign, not only do I think, like, the, the formal politics of it are pretty dodgy, but, like, what does it mean to be involved? You know, that, like, it, what what can you do? There, there There's no meetings. Like, there was one mass meeting in Melbourne. There was a very big rally in Melbourne, so maybe something's going on in Melbourne that's not going on out here. And I don't think... And I think while there's a lot of excitement amongst you know, probably people on the left because it looks like something's happening. I don't really know if Change the Rules is resonating more broadly in the class either. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> the, the, the main way that, uh, that uh, it tries to resonate uh, in, amongst the class more broadly is with television ads, which are... You know, amongst the most demoralising defeats. Oh, they're fucking sad, aren't they? I've 
ever seen in my life, especially the ones where they use actors and then have down the bottom, we haven't used the real people because they're so shit scared if they appear on the ad that they'll get targeted by the boss. Well, that's a great way of recruiting people to the movement. We're so weak we can't protect people we put in our ads. Yeah. Did you read... Probably not. I'm, I'm sure. I must be a sucker because I don't think anyone reads this shit. But um, <laughs> the the jobs you can count on document that the union released, which is you know the 104 docu- no demands that are meant to be behind the change the rules campaign. Have you had a look at that? No, no. It is really fucking mind blowing. So it's basically like a full blown like call for like state intervention to develop Australian capitalism. Um, with the hope you can use state intervention to change capitalism so it delivers full unemployment and wonderful jobs. But it basically says in that document, like, what workers need is more arbitration. So this is the union leadership saying, we can't save save you. What we need is the state to be able to come and save you. And it also argues that, like, unions are needed to increase wages and the way that you will increase the power of unions is to get the government to support them. So it's not even believing that unions can convince workers to join out of their own self-interest. And that's the leadership. <laughs> isn't that fucking mind-blowing? Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, really, you know, it's fairly obvious, and I think people understand this, that uh, I was, as I said, I was at my union meeting um, last week, and the industrial officer from my from Sydney came down to explain um, what we were doing, and he mentioned change the rules in an offhand way, and and basically said, yeah, well, this is gearing up for the next election. That's what this campaign's about, and of course, that's what it is about. I mean, absolutely, and people, I think people understand that. That's it's about that's true. you know what we need to do is elect a Labor government um, and get them to change the rules that they introduced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are their rules, Why? which, of course, is crazy. You know, building yeah. a campaign to rely on the party that brought in the rules that you are then relying on them to change. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like mystif- mystification wrapped in an illusion, wrapped yeah, in some bullshit, isn't it? It's, you know, like, absolutely. on one hand, it's this dream that somehow the state can do this magic and make capitalism different. And then on the other hand, it's the dream that the ALP are the party that's going to do that. Yeah, it's um. Look, I guess the other thing is well. So, does, so does that mean if you like that? Do you see like lessons from the Maritime Defence Committee having any relevance in this moment, or has the kind of terrain of the class struggle changed so much that you don't see like a clear analog there? Well, I th- I think. I, I, I made that semi-joke about the heart of MUA being communism. And for me, you know, the height of the, the most, the, the important thing about that dispute and that commonly is understood are the picket lines. And that's where we saw communism in this dispute. We saw it on the picket lines. Now, on the picket lines, we had people from all over the place. Some were MUA people, some people from other unions but people were from all over the place you know small business people we had you know the nate the cast from neighbors it was it you know it was amazing that 
what's happened with the union movement is that most people have gone, fuck it, we're not interested anymore. Um, but we still want to struggle. We're just going to struggle in other ways. And the, the sort of relationships, social networks, cooperation, collaboration, uh, mutual aid that we saw on the picket lines is alive and well. Class struggle in, in this country is alive and well. It's not happening in general through the union movement. It's certainly not happening via the ALP. It's happening in much more uh, self-organised, fluid, diverse ways. Um, there are still continuing traditional labour movement struggles. They are still important. I still am involved in them. Other people, you know, who are very critical of the union movement are still involved in them. And I think that's important. It's important to recognise that the movement is contradictory and that we, you know, at times the class can still use old organisational forms in irregular ways, yeah, subvert them and, and so forth and, and find use for them. Um, but the, the, the fact is that it's, there's now much better understanding that there is no clear distinction between workplaces and non-workplaces, workers and non-workers, work and non-work, you know, that, that social life is where struggle occurs, not just on the job. And that's where struggle is occurring. And it's occurring in a whole range of, a whole variety of ways. So here in Wollongong, we've got all sorts of things going on that I consider to be class struggle um, from the, the, the street level to the neighbourhood level to the city level uh, around all sorts of really, you know, important, crucial issues. Um, and the union movement sometimes is involved in those and sometimes isn't. Um, but the class is, you know, is much more complex and organising in much more complex ways than the union movement is possible. It can possibly uh, reflect or represent. Look, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to have a chat about in relation to this? We're going to get you on in a month or so to talk about um, some of your other ideas. So. Listeners might be aware that we uh, raised uh, some money for this brilliant new equipment and Nick and his partner Sharon were very generous in donating and so one of the privileges of that is Nick gets to be interviewed again. Um, but is there is there anything around these particular issues you think we haven't touched on that would be important for us to chat about? I'm sure I'll think of some things <laughs> as soon as we end. Dave. Look, I could go on forever. And we could probably do that together. Um, but no, I think, you know, that's been a really interesting uh, um, and fruitful discussion. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, well, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, we might sign off now. You ha Now, if people, just a reminder of people, have you written on the MUA dispute? Um, no, I don't think I have. No, I don't think I have. I can't remember. Like I wrote leaflets and so forth, you know, but not a uh, propaganda ma ma material. And I think I wrote some stuff about the Eric Wicker campaign. Um, but no, I don't think so. Yeah, it is quite um, fascinating to get like, you know, I'm, I'm more and more really trying to get a handle on not just what's happening in capitalism in general, but like what's happening in capitalism in Australia. 
and the role that the MUA dispute plays in a certain cycle of struggles that continues, I guess, in different ways into the anti-war movement, perhaps, um, is, is I think is really, really fascinating. And, um, you know, to, to, to get a handle on that. But people who are interested in your writings, they can read your work at revoltsnow.wordpress.com. Yeah. And I, I recommend that people do, particularly in the lead-up to our next interview with you so people have done their homework beforehand so they they can follow along indeed indeed um i that would be wonderful and um if people are interested i have written something it's a couple of years ago now about um the union struggle around the steel industry here in wollongong um on the blog and that's called getting the gong that's a brilliant Um, piece of writing and that talks about some of the issues we've we've discussed. Well, okay. Well, I'll, ma- I'll make sure that um, I link to it in the show notes. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. I hope you are living the dream. Thanks, Nick. And we'll all talk together soon. Thank you, Dave. the f-
ghost of old time Joe And so that's how the, the, I guess, the, you know, that experience and, oh, look, how I'll cut that bit out because I don't know what I'm saying.